Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Every year, hundreds of people begin to transform their lives at the Heartland Alliance's Marjorie Kovler Center. The Kovler Center treats survivors of politically sanctioned torture. They've been at it since 1987. On October 18th, they're having a torture treatment symposium on the impact of torture in our world. It's at the Newberry Library on October 18th. The keynote speaker of the symposium is with us, Susan Zesch, the executive director of the Posen Family Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. Nice to see you, Susan. We talk with you frequently about Mexico. Thank you. And also with us is Nicole St. Jean. She's a psychologist and the project director at the Kovler Child Trauma Center. Thanks a lot for joining us, Nicole. Thank you. I'm sure some people are listening now and saying, I did not know that there was a place that treated torture survivors in Chicago. Um, Tell us something about the Kovler Center for people who don't don't know what it is. Absolutely. The Kovler Center has actually been around for 30 years. It's housed within Heartland Alliance, and it was established in 1987 to treat the complex consequences of individuals who've experienced torture. Um, Over the year, uh, torture is intended to... Uh, create disempower and distrust within communities. And the Kovler Center was established to help support these individuals and reestablish their personal integrity and rebuild community. And so what we end up doing there is providing clinical mental health and primary care services to these individuals. Can you explain the process that somebody goes through when they are rebuilding the trust they need to live their lives? Absolutely. Yes, that's a really important question. Um, When individuals come over from countries across the world, we primarily see individuals from African nations as well as South and Latin America right now. The, they come up often not speaking English, not having any type of home base, not knowing people, not having any type of home or job or access to any type of insurance. And so when they end up coming to Kovler, that might be through word of mouth walk-ins, if they end up getting connected to lawyers who refer them, we end up working with them to help let them know that they have a place of hope and promise. We do that through offering them advocacy and access to services that they might not have been aware of. And we do that by giving them power first, by saying, how do you want to engage with us? Where do you want to start? Where do you want to begin to engage with a new community here in this country where you have been forced to move into? How does the system work at Kovler? There's a there's teams of volunteer mm-hmm. psychologists, and there's also staff people, and there's uh, programs that help the the survivors of torture with everything from their housing to their their meals, their language. They, they, you, you've, it's kind of a do-it-all place. Absolutely, yes, because everybody needs opportunities to be able to do it all as you're rebuilding your life. Um, so Kofler actually is um, staffed by approximately 20 people, many of which are part-time, but we have over 200 volunteers that engage in our work. And those, can, those volunteers are, as you named, different types of psychologists, social workers, acupuncturists, um, ESL teachers, tutors, people that do medical accompaniments for individuals that need to go to medical appointments throughout the city. And the way we function is we meet with somebody, um, talk about what might have happened to them, and they then engage in an intake process where we understand and begin to hear their story about what they have gone through and identify what types of supports they they need next. And there's specific ways that psychologists go about assessing trauma and anxiety. And I imagine these people are kind of off the charts. And then as time goes on, you uh, after treatment, you see them change. Absolutely. So individuals who've experienced 
torture typically present with complex uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, Often that is accompanied by depression as well as anxiety and other mental health ailments. Um, What we end up doing is working from a combination of a human rights framework as well as trying to understand the impact of trauma through Judy Herman's model of complex trauma, which really is focused on trying to reestablish safety, mourning and remembering of past experiences, and then community rebuilding. How long does the process typically take? Is there a typical situation? That is a question that's quite complicated and I think is always moving, especially with the political landscape that is going on right now. Um, Often these individuals, we tend to say we engage with them for approximately two years of service. But what we have found as people are having greater difficulty being able to achieve legal access um, through winning asylum or other types of decision-making, as that process becomes longer, our clients are having more difficulties and are remaining in treatment services longer until they're able to achieve their status. Um, Now, the symposium that you're having about the impact of torture in our world, um, Mm -hmm. why did Kovler want to do this? Another great question. Um, This was actually conceptualized a number of years ago by our leadership council. And um, over the years, we have really come to rise to say we need to talk about what is torture in the uh, world around us, around the globe. These are international populations, but it's not just about what's happening around the world. It's also happening in the U.S. and here in Chicago. And so the symposium is about educating and raising awareness of torture today and then providing skills and opportunities, access and tools to the audience members to be able to go back into their personal and professional communities and begin to dismantle and work towards ending this human rights violation. And people might be familiar with the John Birch situation and the settlement there allocated a lot of money for help Mm -hmm. uh, for, for torture survivors. Those are the kind of things that are going on right now in the United States. Right. We have the Chicago Torture Justice Center is set up in Englewood and is – it's not a lot of money, frankly, because the whole reparations package was $5 million. And to run a full-fledged center that focuses on domestic survivors of torture, as the people who do Kovler know, takes a lot of work. So they've gotten sort of a kickstart from the reparations legislation that the city council passed in 2015, but it's going to be a long road before um, torture survivors of torture that took place in the U.S. will have access to the kind of substantial services that Kovler is able to offer. Uh, We're talking about the Heartland Alliance and the Marjorie Kovler Center. Uh, They're having uh, a symposium on the impact of torture in our world, and Susan Zesch is going to be the keynote speaker. And uh, also with us is Nicole St. Jean from the Kovler Child Trauma Center, and I wanted to ask more about the legal um, uh, basis of of things in the United States. Uh, The U.S. is a signatory to the Torture Convention, and um, there's been lots of discussion about torture abroad. There's not so much discussion about torture in the U.S., even though we know it has happened and is happening. Uh, How does that work, Susan? Well, before I get to the domestic angle, I think the framing is that when the U.S. ratified the Torture Convention in 1994 during the Clinton administration, it was signed by President Reagan and ratified by the Senate under President Clinton, there there was sort of an assumption that torture didn't take place in the U.S. There wasn't legislation passed um, to deal with 
domestic survivors of torture in their what are called reservations to the treaty. The uh, U.S. Senate said, well, we have the Fifth and Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments and that ought to take care of any problems of torture or cruel, inhumane and degrading treatment in the U.S. Um, and they did do a very good job of setting up legislation to allow people who had been victims of torture abroad to receive treatment when they were came to the United States, either through being admitted as refugees or being in the process of applying for political asylum. And they also set up a special grounds. It's like an alternative or complementary thing for asylum for people who were victims of torture. It's a somewhat less daunting legal um, matter to prove that you are likely to be subjected to torture. It doesn't get you as much. If you get political asylum, you will ultimately be a permanent resident. This um, complementary protection, as it's called, for people who are saying they can't go back to their home country because they would be subjected to torture doesn't get you a green card ultimately. So they the Congress did a pretty good job of taking care of people who had suffered torture outside the United States. Now, that's being limited, as Nicole already mentioned in her presentation. First of all, Attorney General Jefferson Beauregard Sessions has decreed that victims of domestic violence and people who are victims of or threatened by gang violence, and a lot of those acts or threats can be considered under this cap of torture should not be granted political asylum. So they're trying to cut what kind of access the Kovler Center's clients have to legal status. The other thing that we all know that the White House did was it drastically cut the number of people who are going to be legally admitted as refugees. So again, the, the client base of the Kovler Center is really being threatened by initiatives out of the executive branch. Is the G attorney general... Uh within his purview to define torture the way he does. He, he gets to figure it out the way he wants to. Well, that gets a little bit into the weeds in legal doctrine, but there's something called the Chevron Doctrine, which means that the courts will generally defer to the head of an executive agency to define their own statute, what it means. But it, this is going to go to court. Um, advocates for asylum applicants are bringing um, this opinion of the attorney general before judicial review in order to try to get – not allow attorney general sessions to upset what had been a couple of decades of precedent setting up domestic violence and threats from gangs as being grounds for asylum. Back to the U.S., I think that um, – Advocates have done a very good job, particularly here in Chicago and in Illinois, to talk about the application of the Convention Against Torture to situations that arise within the territory of the U.S. Um, what are some of the situations yeah, so, that we should know about? Well, a couple. One is that it's been the newest one which hasn't been really framed this way, is that the separation, taking children away from their parents as part of the administration's border initiatives constitutes torture. It's the intentional infliction of emotional distress to punish someone for an act done by another person. And so removing children from their parents to punish the parents for having come into the country illegally without authorization 
I think constitutes torture. We, have to, we haven't yet gotten to where we're defining it as that, but I think it's kind of obvious when you think about it. But the other that's a very big issue and where we had a pretty successful resolution of at least one aspect of it here in Chicago is that in Illinois is that um, one of the past UN special rapporteurs on torture, Juan Mendez, issued a memo a number of years back saying that long-term solitary confinement in U.S. prisons constituted torture. The American Friends Service Committee um, on their website tells us, I looked up the numbers today, that there are 80,000 people in U.S. prisons and jails in solitary confinement and that long-term is considered anything more than a couple of weeks, at which point it becomes torture because it results in, in some cases, irreversible psychological damage. And you can speak to that. I mean, people who, uh, I, you know, when I started talking with people who were um, survivors of long-term solitary confinement, I was really struck by, um, I, I talked to Terry Waite, the, the, the envoy who, who was in Lebanon, and I was like, oh, this man is never going to be the same. He is, um, he's, he's really suffered. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a debilitating thing. Absolutely. The impact that any type of traumatic experience, especially the intensity of torture, can have a lifelong impact on somebody. One of the ways that we often speak about it is, although you can um, move towards resilience and manage your emotional symptoms, it is always going to have an impact on how you engage and interact with the world. Despite you building up positive new experiences and beginning to rebuild trust, you do have the experiences of what has happened carry with you. We had a very interesting um, encounter with between Juan Mendez, the UN Special Rapporteur, and some survivors of the TAMS prison in downstate Illinois and with the mothers of the TAMS prison. And, and Juan Mendez's visit to Chicago occurred right at the moment when the governor was going to have to decide and the legislature was going to have to decide whether they were going to permanently close TAMS. And the timing of his declaration as special rapporteur that long-term solitary confinement constituted torture combined with his meetings with people and he did write a letter to Governor Quinn, I think helped – us get a link between a very local concern in Illinois and the person who at the international level was the worldwide expert on torture. Is there any campaigns going against solitary confinement right now? Is that something that is um, uh, an ongoing issue? I think it is. And all of the – in Illinois, we have a very good um, and strong movement looking at sentencing practices in Illinois and long-term confinement period, long-term sentences because we don't have as much access to parole and the use of solitary confinement still for disciplinary purposes across the Illinois Department of Corrections, despite the abolition of the TAMS prison, which was the all-solitary confinement maximum security prison. Nicole St. Jean, the Torture Symposium is on October 18th. It is a day-long affair at the Newberry Library. In addition to hearing uh, Susan Zesch, who else are people going to hear from? Yes, we will be hearing from professionals uh, Professionals from a variety of different disciplines. Following Susan, we're going to have Bernadine Dorn, who will be speaking. She will be addressing the question of why is torture still happening? This is an endemic question that people struggle to understand with knowing that this is a human rights violation and it continues to have an impact in society. That will be followed by 
three of our former senior directors of the Kovler Center. They will be on a panel together, and they span together across 30 years of work. They are the nicest people. I've they met all three, three of them, Antonio Martinez, uh, Mary Fabry, and Marilyn Everson, and they're just terrific people, and that should be a great panel. And, and so um, I hope people can take advantage and learn something about uh, torture treatment and the Torture Treatment Symposium with the Harvard Alliance and the Marjorie Kohler Center. It's at the Newberry Library, and people can get more information at heartlandalliance.org slash Kovler. Backslash Kovler, yes, that's Kovler. correct. Thanks a lot for joining us, Nicole St. Jean, psychologist and project director at the Kovler Child Trauma Center, and Susan Zash, executive director of the Posen Family Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up, we'll talk about how much responsibility grocery stores have to look into their supply chains. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. How much responsibility do grocery stores have to look into the supply chains of the items they sell? The anti-poverty organization Oxfam thinks they can do more. They started a campaign called Behind the Barcodes. With us is Oliver Gottfried. He serves as senior campaign strategist at Oxfam America, and he oversees their food campaigns. Thanks for joining us, Oliver. Thanks for having me on. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your scorecard here and how you go about rating different grocery stores and looking into how they look into their supply chains? Sure. So uh, the point of this campaign is to look at the policies and practices of some of the biggest supermarkets in the U.S. Uh, and as part of the larger global Oxfam Confederation, the policies of supermarkets around the world. We want to do uh, to give a, give consumers a sort of basic understanding of what are supermarkets doing to better understand what human rights risks are happening behind the products that they source and that they sell in their stores, and what are they doing to actually fix those issues if they come about. So we scoured the policies, the public policies of six of the biggest supermarkets in the U.S. and tried to boil them down into some of the biggest categories and make it easier for shoppers when they go into the grocery store to have a better idea of what these supermarkets are doing and how they're performing. These can be very complex issues, and we want to simplify it for consumers so that they have a better idea of uh, what is behind the uh, products on their supermarket shelves. Do all the grocery stores have stated ethical goals here that they say they have that they to look into supply chains. Uh, it really varies quite a bit. You'll see some grocery stores that are much better when it comes to issues of transparency and accountability, where their food comes from, how it's sourced, how the workers are treated, and, and looking beyond issues that, that Oxfam looked at. Some of them have a lot of uh, policies around things like environmental impact or the treatment of animals. Uh, but generally what we found specifically looking at human rights risks and looking at the people who produce mm, through farming and fishing and processing um, the food that goes into uh, the grocery store shelves where we shop is that uh, supermarkets, for the most part, are falling short all across the board, and that's reflected in our uh, scorecard. There is much more they can be doing to ensure that the people who produce that food are being treated fairly, they're being paid well, and uh, generally are able to support themselves and support their families. What kind of dialogue did you have with the supermarkets about this? Because there's um, a transparency and accountability section, and it seems like some uh, organizations were keen to engage you and others weren't. 
Yeah. So uh, it's a hallmark of Oxfam's work when we uh, start looking into the policies and practices uh, of private sector companies uh, is to be completely open and transparent with them. So we approached all of these grocery stores more than a year and a half ago when we just started doing research into um, their policies and their practices, and we attempted to engage in dialogue with them. We wanted to know more about what they were doing. Perhaps there were many policies that they had that they simply weren't being transparent about, and we try to push companies to be more transparent about it. The way that they can be accountable to their customers, to other stakeholders, to their investors, is for them to be public and transparent about the policies that they have. Um, and we've had uh, we've had good dialogue with many of the supermarkets, but we've certainly been very disappointed that there are a number of supermarkets, including most specifically Whole Foods, um, that has just refused to engage with us at all um, for us to be able to present some of the information that we've uh, found and ask them some questions more specifically about the policies and practices that they have. And we reached out to Whole Foods and did not get a response from them either. And so you've decided to take a truck uh, around to different Whole Foods in the country. And there is currently a truck outside the Whole Foods I shop at on Illinois Avenue. And what are what are you what are you campaigning on there? Sure. So we launched this uh, campaign behind the barcodes uh, in June and started to raise, uh, you know, raise awareness about these issues for shoppers all around the U.S. and all around the world, um, and specifically called attention to Whole Foods because we found that, you know, they present themselves as a very sustainable, very virtuous, very socially conscious company. And when we analyzed their policies, we found that they fall well short of their stated priorities and their stated uh, goals. And so we wanted to educate consumers and help them better understand that. And we found a very good response from uh, customers so far. Over 200,000 people from all 50 states and, and from many, many countries around the world have signed our petition calling on Whole Foods to, to address these issues and to take action. But the company still hasn't responded. And so we feel like while they may uh, ignore an organization like Oxfam, even though we've been raising these issues very seriously, they can't ignore the voices of their customers. We have found in our work that if, if customers and, and shoppers speak up and raise concerns about it, issues, companies are forced to respond because they do care what their customers think about them. So we've decided to take this on the road and to visit Whole Foods stores all around the country and continue to engage shoppers and really push Whole Foods to uh, sit down and meet with us about this. Are there specific items at Whole Foods that you're concerned about? So one of the uh, places, one of the food products on the shelves that we dug in most specifically on was on seafood products from Southeast Asia. Uh, we worked and interviewed uh, both Oxfam and our partner organizations over uh, a period of many months last year with seafood processing workers, both in Thailand and Indonesia. Um, and we found terrible human rights abuses uh, for workers there, workers who were not earning enough to feed themselves or their families. They were going hungry, even though they process the food that ends up on our shelves. Um, we found uh, workers being denied the ability to go to the bathroom, being denied uh, drinking water, and being uh, subjected to horrible verbal uh, and, in some cases, physical harassment. And we found that the companies, uh, the places where they, uh, where this abuse is happening, connects directly to Whole Foods supply chain. One of the things we've been asking them as part of um, this attempted engagement with them is we found these in your supply chains. You know, can you tell us whether we have this correct or not? Are we correct that this is happening in your supply chain? And they have yet to deny that that's the case. So, uh, we feel that this is an issue that they absolutely have to address. This is just one example. Um, we have research in many other supply chains as well, but the seafood in your uh, in your Whole Foods may very well have this sort of human suffering behind it. I'm talking with Oliver Gottfried. Sir, he serves as the senior campaign strategist at Oxfam America and oversees the Oxfam food campaigns. We're talking about their Behind the Barcode campaign. 
Um, so uh, right now at, at Whole Foods, you go in and um, how, do you, how should people shop there if they're thinking about what to do next? Um, is there a criteria you would use when, when you go shopping? Yeah. So to be very clear, um, just in case there's any confusion, we are absolutely not asking people to boycott Whole Foods. We are not asking people to boycott any particular product or brand. Um, it is very important that people actually keep shopping at Whole Foods so that they can use the power of their shopping dollar um, to tell companies uh, what they care about and not. Um, and so we're really pushing people to ask questions. Start asking questions. Go into your grocery stores or, or contact the, these companies on social media and say, is this sort of human suffering happening behind the products on your shelves? And if so, what are you doing about it? That's one of our biggest asks of the companies is just we want to make sure that they are doing everything they can to understand if these sorts of human rights abuses are happening in their supply chains. And if they are, what steps are they taking to ensure that they stop happening? Um, as well as making sure that the workers who process the food that they sell are, are being paid fairly and treated fairly as well. And so we're asking customers to just to speak out because these stores do really care uh, what their shoppers think. And does Whole Foods have a stated um, uh, ethical position on this? So they have a number of policies, and, and part of the um, they do score two percent out of a hundred on our uh, scorecard, um, and that comes both in the in the workers category, which is about uh, empowering workers in their supply chain and, and respecting workers' rights and human rights, um, and then also in the farmers category in our scorecard, which is about supporting small farmers and sourcing more from small farmers. And the reason that they do score in those categories is they do have a number of policies um, about uh, ethical sourcing policies and, and prioritizing some issues over others. Um, there are also a number of policies they have that are outside the purview of, of the specific areas that Oxfam looked at as part of this study. And you'll notice that if you go in there, they, are, um, they can be very good about uh, things like animal welfare and the environmental impact of their products. But where we feel they are falling short uh, is in about the human impact of the, of the sourcing that they have. So there are a number of policies they do have. Um, but in the areas that we specifically looked at, and certainly in the human rights abuses that we've found, um, we think there's much, much more they could be doing. Is there something outside of the um, seafood that you're specifically interested in with uh, Whole Foods? So we did look at uh, a, a range of different uh, food products. Um, we've been highlighting seafood because that happens to be the one where we've, we've found some of the worst uh, human rights abuses. Um, but the scorecard itself is not just focused on seafood. The scorecard itself is actually focused on all of their uh, the products that they source and sell in their grocery store. Um, so we, you know, we are not asking any of these companies to just specifically address problems in their seafood supply chains because there are several other, many other seafood supp uh, food supply chains chains that are uh, equally as problematic. So we want them to, to really re to do more research about all of the food products that they buy, maybe perhaps starting most specifically with the ones where they're the highest risk of human rights abuses. And if they don't have policies, or even if they do have policies that may be falling short, is to take action to address those so that we can be sure that all of the products that they sell are produced and, and sourced fairly. Oliver Gottfried is the senior campaign strategist at Oxfam America. He oversees their food campaigns, and we've been talking about their Behind the Barcode campaign, and they've got a truck outside of Whole Foods today and are talking about some of the ways that they get their seafood and other products. Thanks a lot for joining us, Oliver Gottfried. Thank you very much for having me on. Coming up after the break, we'll uh, celebrate the Hispanic Heritage Month. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I gotta eat. 
So that I beg your pardon. I beg you get me started. Cause I feel like I'm starving. I gotta eat. Yo, this thing that I'm smoking. Yeah, this be so puzzled. You would think it's important. I gotta eat. So that I beg your pardon. I beg you get me started. Cause I feel like This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Hispanic Heritage Month ends next Monday, and there have been many celebrations of Latinx identity around the city and country over the last month. Our next guest takes a critical look at how Latinx people interact with their social surroundings. Prisca Dorcas Rodriguez is a Nicaraguan writer and theologian. Prisca founded the Latina Rebels Platform. In 2016, she wrote a viral article in the uh, Huffington Post called Dear Woke Brown Girl. Worldview production assistant Viviana Garcia Blanco began the conversation by asking Prisca how she constructs her identity. Wow. <laughs> um, identity has everything to do with like my radicalization because I was born in Nicaragua and so I was born in my community and then I moved to Miami, which is very Nicaraguan too. <laughs> I think uh, it's the second biggest migration hub of people from my country. So I never really thought about what I was or who I was. There were some anti-Indigenous comments that came my way because um, being Latina is an ethnicity and not a race. And so we do have really, really white Latinos, like blonde, blue eyes. And we have like black ones. And then we have people that look like me who are brown and dark haired and have prominent indigenous features. And so I remember like getting comments that were really anti-indigenous, but... It felt really minimal at that point. I mean, the nickname for people from my countries, it's, it's a derogatory nickname, but it's Tira Flechas. So we're known to look indigenous. Um, so I didn't really think about identity much uh, until I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, which is like, I think 7% of the population in Nashville, Tennessee is Latinx. And that was the first time that I started thinking about like, why are people treating me differently? Why are people questioning why I'm here I got welcomed to America my first week at Vanderbilt, and I didn't understand what that person meant. It was an older alumni of the university. I worked at the library as my work study, and he, like, looked at me and, like, squinted his eyes because I was sitting in the front desk of the library as special collections, and he's like, where are you from? But when you're an immigrant and you've already migrated to the country and lived somewhere else, like, you're used to that question. And so I'm very proudly Nicaraguense. I'd be like, yeah, I was born in Nicaragua. And I didn't know the connotation that it took when it was white people asking you that, um, which is like, you don't look like you belong here and you're not white and that kind of stuff. And so I was just like very easily just like, oh, I'm from Nicaragua. <laughs> but he didn't ask me how long I've been in this country, anything. He was just like, oh, welcome to America, he said. And I was like, Central America is America, but also, like, I've been in Miami mm-hmm. for 19 years at that point, and I moved to Vanderbilt for grad school mm-hmm. in Nashville. So I was just like, what is happening? <laughs> and different things like that kept happening to me. Like, the first Halloween, one of my, what I thought was one of my best friends, she was a white girl in my program, she's like, can I be you for Halloween? And I was like, what does that mean? What, did, what about me looks different than you? And what am I wearing that you don't wear? And 
So, yeah, it, it, a lot of those questions started happening when white people started bringing identity questions to mm. the table to me. And I had to analyze what they were really saying instead of what they, I think, thought they were saying. You were finished with Vanderbilt when you wrote your piece, Steer Woke Brown Girl, yeah. for Huffington Post. Why do you think so many Latinas find this work so relatable? <laughs> it was actually, it hit me really hard when it went. That was my first piece that went viral. Mm-hmm. I had graduated in May 2015. In August, the Huffington Post messaged me on Instagram. And they were like, we love your captions. We would love for you to write for us. And after going to a PWI, a private white serving institution, you just, as somebody who grew up in the hood, who like always has to play catch up to private school kids and went to a private university for my graduate program, I just like didn't I had imposter syndrome was real and I did not think I was good enough. And so when somebody asked me to write for them as big as the Huffington Post, I was like, you're a troll. <laughs> and like I had to Google this person because I was like, are they a troll for real? And I found that they had a profile mm. on the Huffington Post and they were pretty high up on Latino voices, which is like their Latino section of Huffington Post. And I was like, okay, okay. And so I replied. Her name was Tanisha Ramirez at the time. And I replied and I started writing in September. And my pieces were not good at the b and I just didn't have a voice and I didn't have... I, didn't, I had a voice, but academia teaches you that everything you say has to be cited. And everything, your opinion isn't important, is what's the research behind it. And so when I graduated, I didn't, I didn't think like me saying anything that I said was important in the slightest. But I was like, whatever, I'm just going to start writing these pieces. And she kept encouraging and was like, you're amazing, you're awesome, keep doing it. And I, I started working at Neiman Marcus and... Um, I remember pulling up to park at Neiman Marcus, and I'm like, oh, are all the edits fine? And Tanisha's like, yeah, your piece is going up in a few minutes. And I was like, cool. And I go into Neiman Marcus, and I open my locker at work, and I put in my phone and everything in my locker, and I close it. I go to work. I come back at my lunch break, and my phone is hot to the touch because Dear Oak Brown Girl was a published piece, and it had gone viral. And... I had gotten friend requests, messages, emails. Tanisha was like, it's doing really well. But it was just like really overwhelming because I wrote it from a place of hurt and Mm -hmm. sadness. And it was my letter to myself to be like, things are really hard. Being brown is really hard. Being a girl is really hard. Being an immigrant is really hard. But here you are, like, doing this (laughs) (laughs) And... It went viral. I didn't understand why so many people identified with it. It, like, made me really sad initially. And I remember going up to my manager at Neiman Marcus and being like, I got to go home. I'm viral. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, I am viral. I got to go. And I never went back to Neiman Marcus after that because I don't think he understood what was happening. But, uh, yeah, a lot of people were hurting and nobody had named this particular kind of hurt and in America that under uh, generally tends to understand race as black and white I mean those are the only categorizations you can kind of fill in or other whatever that means so yeah I I was like talking to a particular experience that hadn't been talked about in Dear Woke Brown Girl and in several other of your pieces you use Spanglish a lot in your writing Um, why is this important for you to use It's political for me. I think assimilation is, like, really important to white America. 
And it's it's so important that they're not even ashamed to say, like, erase parts of yourself for us to accept you in society. Like, they really aren't. And for me, as somebody who came at seven years old from Nicaragua, I know and only speak Spanish at home. My parents still don't know English. So I, I know Spanish really well and I know English really well, but I also don't know either language really well. <laughs> so there's words I know in one language or the other. I have really big words that I know in English, really like loving slang words you can only say in Spanish. So for me, it was like telling people, it was my subtle way of telling people, I am a collusion of two worlds. And this is what it looks like. And a lot of the times I don't even italicize my Spanish because to italicize a language means to, to name it as foreign. And there's a lot of us who Spanish and English aren't foreign to us. So it's that Spanglish. So we need to embrace it. And um, America as it stands and the U.S. needs to embrace that there are these people who are really comfortable in both languages, but also really not comfortable in these both languages. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Viviana Garcia Blanco, and I'm talking with Prisca Dorcas Mojica Rodriguez, a Nicaraguan storyteller, theologian, and founder of Latina Rebels. So you mentioned how schools and our educational system demand white, middle-class definitions of excellence. This is something you brought up in your work for brown girls who blossom on their own time, which is part of the anthology, Nevertheless, We Persisted. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think the USA, white America, really hates poverty because that's where you hear a lot of like the language around the welfare single mom or you know, you're getting handouts, like all this language, like that that cities will intentionally build benches so that homeless people can't lay on them or they build like barriers under bridges so that homeless people won't be on. They'll bust them out intentionally instead of dealing with what this country isn't doing for poor people and homeless people. They just like try to erase it. And what that does for an immigrant in Nicaragua, at the time we moved here, every 22 Cordobas, which is our currency, was one U.S. dollar. Right now, it's like at the 200s. But at that time, that's already a lot. And so whatever money we brought from Latin America, from Nicaragua, had to be converted into U.S. dollars. And it was nothing. And so a lot of, pe- a lot of immigrants that come here, not all, but a lot, come with that deficit. And so... A lot of us end up in barrios and working poor neighborhoods. And when you hear this in America, they hate poor people. And they say things like, pull yourself by the bootstraps. You just get a work hard without any consideration of, like, institutional oppression. That's what I mean. When I'm in school and I have a learning disability and I'm in a barrio and my public education which has a lot to do with zoning and school segregations, means that I don't have access to somebody saying, you have a reading disability, you have a learning disability, and instead you're just called dumb. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot to overcompensate that. It's It's a lot of jumping through hoops without anybody understanding how many hoops are in my way. A lot of people, black people in America, a lot of immigrants, a lot of Muslim people in America. There's just a lot of hoops. This world is perfect. The U.S. is perfect if you're white, if you're wealthy, especially if you're male. And if you're not any of those things, an able body and straight, right? But if you're not those things, 
there's just a lot of things we have to work through. And for me, acknowledging that has meant taking the blame off of myself and understanding it's a societal ill. And what can I do to improve the societal ill so other people aren't going through that or thinking that it's their fault? So for me, it starts with telling stories and naming those ills so that another little girl isn't like, I'm dumb. No, no, you're not dumb. <laughs> There's just really f***ed up standards. You're the founder of Latina Rebels. Was this kind of your inspiration for the platform as well? It started actually because I was really mad. <laughs> so I went to a really progressive graduate program, and everybody thought they were like the, the next, like God's gift to this earth around progressive and liberal politics. And it was a really white program. I remember one girl wore blackface for Halloween one day, but she was like, oh, I'm a shadow. But I was like, yeah, how do you not understand a history of painting your face black? <laughs> so, yeah, I was really frustrated, and I really hated that all these people knew the right language and the right things to say, but were doing all the wrong things for the people who they thought they were allies with. So, yeah, I went home that day and was really upset and just... May Latino Rebels in like 30 seconds. It was inspired by Latino Rebels um, because Latino Rebels, I felt like, was doing what it was supposed to be doing. But also it was really just a Latinx version of white media, which is just like news and informative and journalism. And I was like, I we're more than that. Our community's funny and we're witty and uh, we have a lot more to offer than just like this linear white media standard for what things are supposed to look like and how we're going to understand things. So I just started a page on Facebook and was like, put funny stuff on it and make people think. But like, also don't bombard them with information. Just give them, give them space to reflect, but also make them laugh and make them think about their mummies and their puppies, but make them realize that it's a lot we're a lot more complicated and complex and nuanced human beings than just a Latinx media replicating whiteness. So you are from Nicaragua. Do you feel like uh, Central American issues are addressed as they should be in, in the media? Or? Never. <laughs> Never. And it's really frustrating what's happening in Nicaragua right now. I think the liberal media... Whereas I'm, I'm a socialist at heart, and I understand what's happening. You just want to, like, root for socialism. But socialism, much like capitalism, hasn't ever been done ethically. And right now what's happening is our quote-unquote socialist president is murdering its citizens. And one of my cousins has actually been abducted, and he's been missing since June. And nobody's covering it. It surprises me how many rallies I've been to for DACA people, and which the majority of DACA recipients are Mexican, and there hasn't been any noise. Like I've been, I speak at colleges for a living, and I've had to tell people they're like, "Oh, have you been to Nicaragua recently?" And I have to tell them, "No, I can't. <laughs> My country is at war, and it is dangerous right now. And how do you not know that if I know your plight?" Why is in my country and Central American narratives even a, a thought in yours? Has it become this issue of Mexican hegemony? Yeah, it definitely is solely that because I grew up knowing a lot about Mexican culture because Mexican co like 
in Mexico was Univision. It was Tele Telemundo was there. And so I knew Cantinflas and I knew, <laughs> you know, I knew like I knew all these popular people and I knew the music. I grew up in mariachis like it just infiltrated. Mexico is the United States of Latin America. They they have all the visibility. They have the voice, everything. And it was because they have more power and more money in our countries. <laughs> and they don't realize, yes, there are poor people that come out of that place. But there isn't a realization that other stories aren't told. And it's been intentional. And there are empires outside of the United States that exist. They're just not as powerful as the U.S., but they do erase a lot of us. And the border from Mexico to Central American countries is pretty strict. And people don't realize, like, the racist stereotypes that are placed on Central Americans by Mexico before even crossing the U.S. border. So, yeah, it has everything to do with that. How do you self-care in today's political environment? Self-care is hard. I live in a red state, but I'm blue city. And there's a lot of what we would call liberals. But I think the narrative of liberals is still talk about oppression, like the person oppressed is never in the room. And so a lot of my self-care means not going to every popular place I want to go to because I hear terrible things. Like I walked into my favorite bar, I went to the outside and they were they were a group of people and they were telling this guy like ice should be shut down do you want a a button we're going to give you a button like you know like this abstract concept that they are advocating for but it's still an abstract concept to them it doesn't directly affect them and i was like oh that's kind of nice sort of it's awkward to walk in on but it's kind of nice <laughs> and then one of the guys they're talking to says yeah i mean ISA can be really terrible, but also, like, immigrants need to assimilate. We assimilated, so they should assimilate. And so here I am, a very visibly not white person, <laughs> in my favorite bar, having to be subjected to their BS politics. <laughs> and I'm just like, so I call my mom because I dare anyone to challenge me directly. And I call my mom, and I she only speaks Spanish, and I was like, I'm sitting with some racist nearby, and I just want you to talk to me about whatever you want. But just talk to me in Spanish. And she just started talking to me, and she started telling me about her day, and I was responding. And I heard the conversation just, like, stop. And they changed the subject. And I was like, yeah, this is self-care in Nashville. <laughs> Reminding people, the actual people, that they can be in the same spaces with are affected by the things that they're so passionate about. Because, like I said, progressive and liberal communities can insulate themselves in white cities among themselves. And so they'll literally talk about oppression and the myth of meritocracy while not acknowledging the cleaning service that's coming around mm -hmm. the, the restaurant cleaning up after them, like not even saying thank you or looking at them in the eyes and treating them like human beings. So self-care is constantly showing up and be willing to get into those confrontations because if I don't, then I'm like slowly dying. <laughs> like I've given up and I've, I've lost that passion and I've, 
I've just accepted that nothing can change, and I refuse to accept that nothing can change. So it's that, but it's also scheduling an in-home massage, which I will do, (laughs) (laughs) and a slew of other really trivial things, but advocating and insisting that you will see me. So, Priska, what's next for you? A lot of things, actually. (laughs) So I started a a podcast, so that's been really fun. Um, It's two of my friends, and we just talk about love, politics, sex, mostly sex. Because to decolonize sex as women of color is like, it's a tough pill to process. (laughs) I'm also, I have an agent. His name is David Patterson with Stuart Kravinsky Agency, and he's pitching my book out this fall so what's the book we haven't decided on a title it's the book proposal is dear woke brown girl but it can change once the publisher gets their hands on it and it's like we see the vision let's run with it (laughs) but he's pitching that out right now i'm traveling full-time and speaking at universities and that's kind of my main focus is traveling full-time doing local gigs as cheaply as possible in nashville tennessee because we're such a underrepresented community being Latinx in Nashville, Tennessee, that anytime anybody invites me to speak at their high school class or their college class, I'm like, yeah, just give me a parking pass. <laughs> <laughs> like, as long as I don't have to get towed, I'll be there. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just, it's it's been about staying busy and staying visible and really vocal about what's happening in our communities. Well, I'm looking forward to your new book, In the meantime, you can listen to Priska's podcast, Spiked Tea Time, on SoundCloud or iTunes. Nevertheless, We Persisted is available to buy in stores or online, so grab yourself a copy. Thank you, Priska, for joining us. I'm Viviana Garcia Blanco, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Start the film Feel your rhythm infectious as I lose my directions to the waves Tomorrow on Worldview, we will talk with Terrell Germain Starr. He's a national political correspondent for The Root. He specializes in U.S.-Russia relations from a black perspective, and he's an expert on foreign policy. We'll have a good chat with him tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance and the great interview you just heard. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.